Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're discussing the sexily numbered yet appropriately titled Excalibur 69 Blight and Fog, in which we learn a little bit more about Cerise, but only a little bit because we gotta stretch this thing out until the next crossover starts. Excalibur number 69 was originally published in September 1993, and the creative team is Evan Skolnick on writing, Steve Buccoletto on pencils and colors, Don Hudson on inks, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Bob Harris and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. Welcome back to another week in purgatory as we transition out of the Davis era of Excalibur and into whatever comes next. But as always, we have an eager crew and, and an equally eager stowaway along with us, who I will introduce in a moment. First, your regular buccaneers. I am Dr. Anna Bapard. I like talking about sex and gender and action stuff and superheroes. You can find me doing that in various academic places and online ones, including at Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I are currently talking about classic comic strips, I believe, at the time of this episode launching. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I am both sorry and relieved that I forgot to discuss Micromax riding Kurt's tail when I guested on the Simply Amazing podcast a couple of weeks back <laughs> to specifically talk about the symbolism of Kurt's tail. Missed this one. But I am joined, as always, by Mav. Reintroduce your exploits. I would, but I hear some scratching in my wall, so I'm just going to grab a gun and shoot through it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to shoot a hole in my wall right now because I thought I heard something. That's the thing that happens in this comic. <laughs> hey, there's some tapping. Let me just destroy my ship. That's a th This is a rational decision that a character made in this comic book. That's my feelings on things. Hi, my name is Sister Maverick. You can call me Mav. <laughs> I studied... God. Uh, I'm a teaching professor of digital narrative interactive design at University of Pittsburgh, and I do a lot of research on comics and gender and sexuality and race and class and culture. And I, I guess this this technically qualifies. I mean, <laughs> Scott McCloud once said that uh, that comics were juxtaposed images. That those are in here. This <laughs> counts as a comic. That's what I got this week. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> 
we've also got, if you have the physical copy of this, a lot of ads for the Dragon Strike oh, game. Yeah. That feels like it's about a third of the comic, including a yep. great ad on the back of it, which has like, I like Dragon Demon Fist crushing a VHS tape. Feels very 1993. That was probably my favorite part of the comic, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, anyway, um, Andrew, please remind us of your adventures. Uh, yes, hello. I'm Dr. J. Andrew Deman. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and, as Anna mentioned, co-project lead for Sequential Scholars, a badass social media micro-publishing endeavor that may or may not have a laboratory by this time next year. But I like to think of Twitter as our digital laboratory for the time being, so you should check us out there. Other than that, like everybody else, I'm currently drowning in start-of-term responsibilities and therefore a little envious of Cerise's blow-it-all-up-and-run-away strategy that we see described in this issue. I'm not saying she's innocent, <laughs> I'm just saying that I see her. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not teaching this term, so I'm feeling very out of sorts. I've been like cleaning the house this week, which I really needed to do, but like doing like a top to bottom clean. You have no, well, okay, it's like a hundred year old farmhouse. The amount of spiders that I have killed in the last three days, like, shoot them. Shoot I know take out your that's what I should be doing. Shoot right, shoot right through your wall, kill the spiders. That's the solution. And you know, I, <laughs> I, I have nothing against spiders. They kill other insects. I, I, you know, I support them, but there's just, there's just so many. Um, and that's been, that's been an experience. Anyway, clearly, we're just so anxious to talk about this comic book because I am talking about cleaning, um, instead of actually talking about the comic. So let's introduce our guest and make him talk about the comic. <laughs> our grumpy <laughs> crew is, is joined this week by guest who cares a lot about Cerise meeting up already. A apologize profusely for making him read this comic the pod gratefully welcomes hunter felt welcome hunter i'm very glad to be here i mentioned in the pre-show thing that it feels like jumping into one of my favorite movies because i've, I've been following <laughs> this podcast for like about a year for about a, like a year now i i think it, and it, I, i'm very uh, i'm very familiar with it and i'm kind of sort of trying like i'm in this sort of like what's my line mode now <laughs> <laughs> We're going to give you plenty of opportunities to talk today. I tr trust me. All right, let me tell the listeners a little bit more about you and we'll get back to do a comics origin story for you. I'm looking forward to that. So Hunter Felt is a freelance writer who's been writing about American sports for the U.S. edition of The Guardian for over a decade now. He also blogs about the Boston Celtics for Forbes.com for the purposes of our discussion. Mm -hmm. However, all you need to know is that he has a lifelong love affair with superheroes and is the world's biggest Cerise fan in capital letters. I award you that <laughs> title, Hunter. So so we will get to, we will get to talking about her, but yeah, let's. Well, maybe your comics origin story is part of that. So we'll do both of the things at the same time. When did you first start reading comics? I don't remember because it was that young. Uh, mm. uh, obviously, like I grew up with like with you know Calvin and Hobbes, The Far Side, all of the like, Bloom County. So comic strips were always part of my life. My my dad was it was a Marvel head back in the day, so we didn't have any comic any comic books but the marvel comic universe was always omnipresent i rewatched uh, constantly the uh the pride of the x-men special was, yeah was a big, <laughs> absolutely a big fan. but i didn't really start getting into the comic books until it was thanks to the movie ernest scared stupid uh wow which basically <laughs> my grandmother took me was took us all to see this 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 masterpiece of of you know modern comedy masterpiece ernest scared stupid and along the way <laughs> uh she allowed us like one like item to buy at the supermarket so i bought the, the marvel trading cards and i was so obsessed with them that i needed to have more of them and the only way to do that at this point was to go to a comic book store from then on from the the first time I went to a comic warehouse which, uh, in Naples, Florida, that became all of my allowance money went straight to, to the guy running this place. Uh, <laughs> so I 
have lots, have had lots of obsessions over about, throughout the course of my life, but this is my first obsession as a consumer, uh, which is very, very important here in the United States. So I just became obsessed with, with there's something about the whole comic book, the, something about superheroes in particular that really, I really liked and the comic book format. And I just, I just became obsessed. And from here on out, it's been a sort of a, Throughout my adult life, it's been a period where I've been huge into superheroes, and then I'm too hip and cool for them, and I step away and I step back and <laughs> go to other pursuits. But now I'm since the pandemic hit, I I've been uh, it's it's been the thing that sort of I've been obsessed with to keep me uh, distracted from all the other terrible things that are going on right now. <laughs> yeah, oh, we've we've talked about that on the podcast before. Just like how many people have gotten back into X Men stuff in the over the course of the pandemic, and it's mm-hmm. been sort of a healing force for all of us. Um, well, let me ask you about your affection for Excalibur in particular. Like, I I think I remember like interacting with you online when you were first getting into our podcast and you have a long time affection for this title in particular so yeah what's the genesis of that what particularly drew you to this one partly because prior to the x-men i was like okay well what when i got into comic books i was like okay i like the i love the x-men idea that's it's it's one of those things where it's it it just looks really cool when you're like i was probably nine years old or ten like around that age like and kitty pride was is uh, as many other guests have talked about it's a very good intro cat character for you know very good mm-hmm. identifying character it's, uh, i'm not gonna go too deeply into that because uh, people who have been more have a better understanding of that character have gone to that so excalibur was like okay that this is the comic book that she's in right now so that this is going to be the one that i'm gonna get and immediately even though i don't even think the first issue was colin the barbarian and i not even sure if Kitty's actually in that one, um, <laughs> but I loved Alan Davis's art, and I love the fact that, it, it, as opposed to the other comic books of the '90s, which were a lot more uh, grim and violent and action-packed, I hated fight scenes, which is a very weird thing as a superhero fan to, to admit. But fight scenes are my least interesting part of the genre, and Excalibur is great because the fight scenes are kind of secondary to everything that else is going on. And I'm a comedy guy. Uh, I watched like 90% of what I watched was comedies. I watched like no studious drama. So Excalibur immediately, it's a bunch of funny, weird creatures. And this is when TechNet are still in the lighthouse. Uh, all of these crazy things and parodies of other things. Like it just, it just appealed to me in a way that most of the other comic books I liked, but I couldn't, weren't quite for me. I wasn't quite, I wasn't ever going to get into X-Force and all of that stuff. <laughs> uh, so I got that and it has, that had the, um, the cliffhanger. Where it's the alien, where the alien bug suit comes out, and I'm like, okay, well, what's gonna happen next? So in the very next issue, they have this fight scene, and it emerges, and it's Cerise, and I, I that I, I just submitted that page for the uh, Oh Gosh Oh Golly Wow uh, Twitter feed. I was doing this retrospective mm-hmm. of Alan Davis pages. And that is my, that is the page where I was completely on board because you get to see all these alien crazy creatures, and then she lifts up her helmet, and she's this tall, glamorous pink and purpled haired woman that pops out of nowhere and the the shock of that and then that Kurt immediately starts flirting with her and that is the scene that hooked me on Excalibur that this was for whatever reason that this 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 appealed to like a nine or ten year old me of 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 the ultimate sort of fantasy (laughs) because I came up loving things like uh, Jim and the Holograms and She-Ra and things like that things that were like I want to say like kind of like a new wave punk sort of look to them like i love the aesthetic of it i thought you were gonna say truly outrageous so you know (laughs) it is also that (laughs) 
what I love that is it's kind of like a complete merging that it's a complete merging of two both like sort of my masculine sort of things that I love like the superheroes the, the superhero comics and action adventure stuff and all that and you know shooting lasers and all that uh, alongside there's some you know it's clearly it's it's almost like she's straight out of the Barbie aisle which is the forbidden pink aisle that's in every store that I wasn't allowed to, to go near because I'm a guy and you couldn't do that those are the rules that's when I sort of fell for the character and yeah that's that 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 scene is the thing that hooked me and then so i followed along the alan davis run for for the next two years or so until roughly around this time when uh the powers that be ted sigh to ruin all of it (laughs) (laughs) oh i love that comment about like cerise says like (laughs) the forbidden toy from the forbidden toy aisle well we have a Mm -hmm. well i guess i have a friend who studies toys that i've been wanting to get on the podcast we haven't had a good opportunity opportunity yet but that just made me think of them um but yeah i want to talk a little bit more about your affection for cerise but um maybe we'll get into it through some griping about this issue. <laughs> again I'm, I'm so sorry um but <laughs> we can talk about our hopes for what cerise might have been um, in conversation with this issue and try to have a little bit of fun with it so we will get back to that i'll do an issue summary first so I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, which remains a little bit difficult due to the stretch of issues not being on the Marvel app. If you need them, DM us. We know a guy. But whether you're starting the issue for the first time or you've been haunted by it for years, let's start today's tribunal with a plot summary. Excalibur 69 opens with Cerise in the ruins of a firebomb city, dramatically sobbing as she cradles a poor deceased whale child in her fuchsia-clawed gloves. It's Cerise's first conversion mission for the Shi'ar Empire, and apparently everyone forgot to tell her that conversion mission are always bad news. Her superior gleefully fries what's left of the whale child in front of her. Cerise vows to put an end to the slaughter, but this was a memory. In the present, she's kicked into a prison cell. She's being transferred to a prison called Crag. Elsewhere, Kurt teleports on board the Starjammer via the garbage chute, with Micromax hot on his tail, and yes, I do mean that literally. They're looking for info on Cerise, who Kurt (laughs) still believes to be innocent. Back on Earth, specifically Braddock Manor, Megan is still sitting in a waterfall. Kitty becomes the fifth person to yell at her to get over it already, but Farron, (laughs) known for his thoughtfulness and compassion always, thinks yelling might not be the right answer. We'll see what he cooks up in the next issue. Meanwhile, near the entrance to Crag, Kylan and Rachel, who already know Cerise is here for some reason, try to pull a Star Wars on the guards, but Rachel, who used her powers to save the entire multiverse two issues ago, doesn't have enough Force Mojo. Still, when the guards pull off her disguise and see the Phoenix symbol, they're suitably afraid. Back on the Starjammer, Corsair talks to a hologram of Lalandra. She tells the Starjammers not to interfere with her sentencing of Cerise, who she says was tried for the murder of a number of Shi'ar soldiers. When Lalandra gets off the holophone, Corsair liberates Kurt and Micromax from the vent and says we're all going to beam to the surface to investigate the truth behind Cerise's conviction. Kurt declares he's going to bring Cerise home, kicking and screaming if necessary, which just no, just absolutely a thousand times no, do not say that horrible (laughs) thing to say. On Crag, a lizard dude mocks Cerise for being nice to an old lady, and Cerise karate kicks him to death. While that's going on, the Starjammers at Excalibur commandeer a ship, and Corsair plays a video where Cerise seems to admit to killing her crew. Kurt tries to make out with the hologram and says he remains committed to her innocence. The issue concludes with Cerise mournfully staring into a desolate landscape as a lady version of Fang from the Imperial Guard looks on, gearing for battle. Okay, Hunter. That was an amazing summary. You made that sound like a really good issue. (laughs) 
I had to I had to make fun of it a little bit to survive. Like honestly, when I was summarizing it, I noticed so many things that didn't make sense. And I kind of tried to stitch it together a little bit better. Because how do they get like they already know where Cerise is? So why did Kurt go on the Star Jammer with Micromax at all if they already knew where they were going? I'm just like it's like things just happen because they needed to God. fill space and it doesn't make any sense. Why did Corsair like order Nightcrawler to like stay behind last issue if like literally just showing up? He's like, yeah, all right, let's go. Let's go save your girlfriend now that I that we only have because I just captured her. Like there's n nothing about this. Nothing about this makes sense. My favorite thing is that the is that the Starjammers just happen to be keeping around a Nightcrawler costume. <laughs> <laughs> well, they just they have do one. have they have like stuff like those clothing replicators and stuff. I'm willing to buy it. I'm willing to buy it. I don't know. Uh, but, but if but if they but then he would like have his normal Nightcrawler. This I know is not his normal know, Nightcrawler costume, and that's not a thing that the Star. That's not a thing that like they use in 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 the Shi'ar galaxy. I know because Wolverine once had to wear fangs costume mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. for, for right. like two years because <laughs> he just like picked it up and just kept it's not that long but it's it's a considerably long time wolverine's costume gets ruined so he just takes fang's costume and just it's just his outfit for a while and uh that's not here that's, that's <laughs> we were given how much like filler there is in this comic we were we, we really should have had a scene where kurt has to pick like a space costume from the rack and there just happens to be one that's close to his colors and we can watch him like modifying it for his tail and everything all of these things would be a better uh, use of our time than a lot of what we have in this issue close to his colors and has two fingered gloves yeah all right we're already getting lost in the weeds on this one. i'm coming back to you hunter for some first impressions this is your first time i believe reading this issue i think you skipped it back back all those years ago so yeah yes. hit me with it how sad or confused or angry are you at this turn of events yeah i i've been trying to read all of Cerise's appearances and one of the things that it one of the things I did was like I knew the summaries of this issue beat by beat everything that happened in the, this whole entire three issue arc and I've been avoiding reading them until now because I know just from reading summaries of how badly they screw up everything so I will say this this is the least worst of the three issues in the, in the arc so yeah I'm going yeah. to damn with yeah. that yeah. faint praise <laughs> um <laughs> But the overall feeling here is there's a Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode where they make fun of a movie called Attack of the The Eye Creatures. Uh, <laughs> again, they because the title repeats the twice and they didn't have time to change it to oh fix it. And at the end of the, the, the episode, they go in the rant. And it's just they they constantly just point out everything that's wrong with the, the, the movie. And then they just go, they just didn't care. Over and over again, they just didn't care. And that that's my overall impression of this issue. And Cerise never gets a spotlight again after this three issue, uh, th these three issues. She appears in later comics, but she never again gets a spotlight on her. And she's kind of ignored throughout most of the Alan Davis run, unfortunately. So this is her big spotlight, and no one cares about the character at all. And that's my overriding thing. Like, it's just written basically to... Give her an origin story and then write her out. That's it. And how they did it was just the, the laziest way possible. That's my impression of the issue. Like if you're getting rid of her, why give her an origin story? <laughs> it yeah. makes no sense. <laughs> 
Well, how are, how are you feeling about it, Andrew? Anything to add? No, I'm on the same page. I think for, for me, the issue is related to something we talked about before with Cerise, which is um, the queer potential of the character that, that you talked about specifically quite a bit, Anna. Um, and to me, the origin story they give her, everything about this story, even her romance to Kurt, to me, it just homogenizes her. Uh, and I, I think that's unfortunate and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like a, you don't deserve Cerise. I'm glad she's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I want to I want to unpack it a little bit more too, like sort of the elements of this origin story. But did you have first impressions to add, Mab, before we move on to that? No, I've most I mean, I've mostly done that through all my jokes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, Hunter, you're right. It's the least bad of this three issue arc. It is not good. It is the least bad. And that is a thing that you can say about this. But like the logic of it is just like everything about this. It's, just, it's a constant me going, OK, but why? Like, I understand when you're when you're going to be given the Nazi youth, you know, origin story, which is what she has here. Right. Like, oh, I was just following orders is her origin story. I mean, fine. But nothing happens. I mean, that's a really heavy beat to give a character like like if you're going to like mm-hmm. really deconstruct that. And OK, I, I guess we 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 should announce spoilers. Next issue's her last issue. And we're not going to do that. You know, this is just a hey, wouldn't it be cool if this clueless li- alien, li- you know, sex kitten lady who eats lipstick also happens to be a Hitler youth? That'd be <laughs> something. And I'm and I'm I mean, like I'm making a joke out of it, but that's what happens. That's the story. And I have no other way of like it's not like I'm doing the English major thing of like reading something into it to where I go, oh, well, maybe maybe they're really it's like with Star Wars where you call them stormtroopers because you're clearly trying to make a Nazi illusion. That's what happens here. They're like, let's uh, let's make her do a genocide. That'd be fun. And and it's it would be dark, except that it's not well enough written to be dark. Right. Like, it, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. just kind of matter factly. Oh, and by the way, she committed atrocities. So let's move on. Yeah, I mean, we were kind of talking about it a little before the podcast and uh, the cover, which is by Michael Golden, very talented comic book artist. Shocking to me. (laughs) Yeah, but like, it's clearly going for dark, but it's like the whale child is very goofy, and it's just like hitting the tones a little wrong, and then that kind of continues into the issue where you know Mm. you have the evil commander that you know, as I said in the summary, just like fries the whale child, and it's like so extreme that it veers into parody and like it's even, just not hitting the notes that it wants to hit even that like i think technically it's good art in a technical sense like it's well drawn yeah it's the composition well inked, is good. and yet it is um, like hey let us do let us you know kill i thought it was a dolphin child instead of a whale child but whichever you know and let's <laughs> kill this let's kill this baby and by the way her boobs are phenomenal yeah like that's, oh, that's yeah. the message and it's like uh, all right i mean they're so yay. spherical <laughs> <laughs> like that's it, it's so weird it's it's just like so many weird choices were made here yeah yeah we've talked about that on a previous episode you know like you need to sort of choose when the exaggerated like boob is necessary to the tone you're trying to hit or when you're not and that's not about policing people's bodies that's about like how you're choosing to draw it and frame it 
or do something with. I mean, because you could you could do something with it, and it's not here. It's just you know, it, it feels like because that's not even the outfit that she's wearing when she commits the atrocities. She's wearing her full armor, right? So yeah, so yeah. you want me to notice her cleavage? That's why she's drawn that way. So those are perfectly spherical boobs above a dying dolphin. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. It looks like That's a child. A choice. Yeah, it looks like a baby. That's a choice. And who she's cradling, you know, like one might cradle a baby under her bosom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many choices. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, it's representative of the whiplash of the issue in a lot of ways, though. I mean, I got to give it that. I mean, okay, let's come back to some stuff about Cerise, because <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about your hopes for her, Hunter, and like what kind of a character <laughs> you would have wanted her to be, because you're clearly unsatisfied with the version of her that we're getting here. So like, why are you dissatisfied like what were you hoping for from this character that you're not getting here there's a lot and i think the main thing is that the the main thing is alan davis left a lot of space here for this character because he Mm -hmm. did not give her any thought balloons very little dialogue uh her origin story in the alan davis run is she pops she pops in from somewhere and it's like i could have a lot of fun here like that's what she says right and throughout it she's kind of that character she's yeah she's a strong warrior and she fights and she likes fighting but she's you know you know bubbly and optimistic and happy and i like that contrast i think there's something very interesting that you could do with that this character and one this this plot totally makes adds this tragic horror horrific backstory to her that doesn't fit with anything that we've seen from the character so far it, it's a completely different sort of personality than anything that we've been suggested second of all it contradicts the information, the very little information that Ellen Davis gives us about her origins, the writers don't care. They just, it's not a retcon that's trying to like add something to what we already know about the character. They simply don't care about what's already been established, which is so little that I don't understand why they could have done anything with this character, but instead they choose to, to deliberately screw up what Alan Davis was, was setting up, which almost feels like, it almost feels like it was done on purpose. Like, it's like like a kid crunched like like I mentioned in, in my introduction when you when you have like a, a Lego set up and the next kid just crushes it just just you know, <laughs> out of spite that's what this feels like to me when she's first introduced she's doing her origin story which is established as complete lies because she's coming here immediately from like uh, from you know this 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 mass genocide event that should you know that that in this story has traumatized her we see none of that in the old in right. her in the Davis run and she's cheerful and happy, even though we know that she's not really like a deceitful character. She's never established as that either. Yeah. So we have that. And then, so she's talking about her, uh, what is established later as her cover story. Kurt goes, you must have been pulled very far off course. I have encountered many alien races, but none that use technology such as yours. She are, are <laughs> the main, the main alien race that yeah. Kurt knows. Like yeah. this is like, like, and again, they just didn't care. They just didn't really look back. They didn't do what I did and go back and try to try to establish Cerise's what Cerise has done to this point and make it fit with what this new story. They just wrote whatever. And the version that they have is a generic sort of. She's just another warrior babe who can kill, you know, kill aliens with a single kick, and that you know, which. That panel is one of the worst panels. You can see her kick and it's like straight up and down like her legs. It's really (laughs) awful. Um, And it just, it it turns what could have been a fun character that is like a change of pace from the nineties, the the nineties image comics, uh, which is about the same time when that image comics is about coming up 
that whole sort of genre of uh, of space woman, we just get she just becomes one a version of that rather than sort of a goofy. And uh, I, I also want to add this: one of the reasons I also identify with the character is the I I found her uh, as someone who's un- undiagnosed autistic, as I think it's kind of obvious of how I'm talking here. I always identified with her sort of fish out of water experience and how she approached the world with sort of like this fre- these fresh eyes and that whole version of the character is just wiped out here in these three issues there's nothing there's nothing resembling that there's nothing here i can there's not much here i can identify with so yeah i don't want to say that alan davis's version of this version of cerise was perfect because obviously he didn't he didn't really give her enough background he didn't prioritize giving her any background before he, he his departure from the book kurt and cerise were my fi- my first ship uh, in comic books, so I was rooting for Kurt and Cerise to go together, and when it happens, it's all rushed and bad, and it doesn't yeah. it doesn't work, which is bad because I, I feel like it's set up very nicely, and yeah. then it's it ends here and during again spoiler alert during this whole run, it it's basically I I call this whole three this three issue arc the you know the character assassination of Cerise by the coward Scott Lobdell. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I just keep thinking about like the way that we can read the choices that are made with Cerise here because, okay, like my thing is like there are attempts made here and we should note that Evan Skolnick is the person who also wrote Excalibur Annual, who is the other person that did the most work developing Cerise's character, strangely, because that was kind of a spotlight issue for her, even though, as we talked about in that episode, she was characterized very differently than Davis characterized her. But still, Mm -hmm. like, I think he actually has some affection for this character on some level because there are attempts to make the character complex we see her compassion she's helping out this old lady right he's trying to make her a badass he's doing all of this stuff but it's like all within the vernacular of the bad girl of the 90s you know and like what that character was and that was who a strong female character was during this era and there is no ability to step outside that frame and imagine a different way of being female or feminine and strong and I think that's sort of part of what we're getting at in terms of the reductiveness of this portrayal because it is very generic right yeah and the way we talked about it before in terms of or sorry i talked about it before but again riffing on anna's earlier comments you talked a lot about how cerise opens up a lot of possibilities for kurt's queerness to be represented um here we're seeing that go in complete reverse as she's homogenized so is he in consequence of that and i think that just sort of doubles down on some of the problems we're seeing in this new era of excalibur where it doesn't want to be a different book it doesn't want to be special it wants to be the fourth best-selling X-Men book in the line. Right? <laughs> was it even fourth? I, I was like, how many were? How no. many were there? I'm sure it was like. No, in, I'm no. sure it was the last. So no, how many it, were yeah, there? Because there would have been there would have been X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold. Blue, there would have been an X-Force, X-Force and there would have been X-Factor, Factor. which almost certainly outsold this. Oh, and if you count Wolverine, Wolverine if you count it, yes. Yeah, so so probably six. Probably the sixth yeah. best-selling X franchise book. Yeah. <laughs> It would have been down. It would have been real down on the line. I mean, I could pull the sales numbers, but I don't even think I want to look. I'm, I'm, I'm certain it's six at best. Well, we know um, the sales you know. numbers are bad because that's why we're doing this, like right. retconning and trying to bring it more in line with the X line. And when we know that's why Davis exactly. was, you know, right. fired, was, quote unquote, fired. Yeah. 
Was there a cable series going on right now? Because there might that, that would have also close. It. Yeah, it's uh, and this is something I'm gonna I'm gonna criticize something that I've said on the show. It's one of the things that I hate it most about the Cerise character about the way this is it's gonna go into what Hunter said about you know retconning even the things that the little we knew about her. Cerise famously doesn't know what babies are. It was six issues ago. <laughs> <laughs> She's never seen. She's never seen a child before. Oh I thought it was god. stupid, but it's the one thing <laughs> oh that I know about. Oh my her. god! Oh I didn't my even think of that. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> the, like, like the one consistent thing that I know about her character is that she has no idea what babies are, what children are. She's like, oh, oh I thought Kitty was just short. It's like a thing that she says in Excalibur number sixty-three six months ago but you know whatever it doesn't matter <laughs> and that's kind of and, and again i go back and listen to that episode i hated that character beat i thought it was really really stupid so this is not better <laughs> and, and that's kind of that's the weirdness of this right like decisions were made i keep saying that you know choices were made but like when you make a choice, I want to know why that choice was made. If if this is all just to bring Excalibur in line with the grim and gritty direction of the X-Men comics at this time, because again, uh, we've talked about this before. The X-Men comics post Claremont tried to go super grim and gritty under the direction of Lee and Lee Field and Silvestri and you know, all those people, uh, Will Spartacia, like all the people who left to form Image Comics. They're gone now. So I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to copy the brilliant success of Youngblood and Wildcats, I guess. But like, not that I love those books. This is not it. Like the art's not as good because you're not Jim Lee. Sorry. You know, you're not Jim Lee and you're not. Rob takes a lot of crap um, sometimes, but Rob is definitively Rob Leefield. He has a, he has a, he has a style and he is doing things that, you know, while I might not like all the decisions he makes, I understand why <laughs> Rob makes every decision like people people criticize the way Rob draws women. What is with the tiny waist? What is with the impossible back? What is without with the boobs bigger than, you know, my car? But like Rob's not doing those things on accident. Those are choices Rob is making is making, you know, for better or worse. He is doing them with intention. None of this feels intentional. Everything in this book feels like uh, I, I can do some image work like I can do that. Cerise needs. She needs bigger guns. Why don't we just make her hand a gun? That's a that's a thing. And, you know, she's not sexy enough when she's getting beat up by the prison guards. Stick her butt out more like it's literally things like that, but not even like when people talk about like the broke back poses and, you know, Escher girls and you know Hawkeye. Like there are two ways to do that. You can you can do it with artistic license that might be objectifying, but that is decisive. Or you can just have bad art and bad storytelling and just going through the motions and this is why this didn't work excalibur did not become the fifth best x-men selling they couldn't go up like you know like like decisions like this were made and it didn't go anywhere because you know it was just lazy lazy yeah. and and cynical and that's how this feels yeah i mean i just i'm thinking about intentionality and excess and the art and stuff too and we talked about this a little bit in the last issue too our episode about the last issue and just like 
Kurt spends like the majority of this comic as well shirtless and it has no effect on me whatsoever which you know normally I would be like all upon that but I'm just like I'm looking at the page with like Micromax clinging to his tail and he's like kicking in midair and teleporting like with those shirt on and stuff and I'm just like he's drawn in such a not female gazy way you know the way men mostly were in the image style you know just so blocky and excessive in a way that was like armoring them and making them not the kinds of men that I personally like to gaze at again gazes are very different and some people do like to gaze at those kind of bodies I'm not saying that but it's just like for me this kind of style of art is very inaccessible and I'm just sort of like ah ah I don't even think it matches that that's the problem they're trying to yeah. get, like they're tr- they're aspiring to the kind of art that you don't like but they're not getting there and I'll, yeah I'll draw, I'll, I'll draw yeah. your attention to um to when Kurt and Micromax teleport onto the star jam like when they first teleport into the star jammer it's not a splash page but it's a splash page with two with two inset panels right kurt teleports in micromax is hanging on his tail and is kurt's leg going forwards or backwards it's going forward (laughs) yes i'm pretty sure but like and i'm not gonna say i'm the best comic book artist in the world i'm not you know i've done a little bit of work i mean i've i've I've, yeah but i can draw a little bit and i've taken some art classes and one does not foreshorten the leg to the rear if the leg is going forward this image does not make sense the pose is irrational even more so than like the things that people complain about on like you know hawkeye initiative this feels like a lack of understanding of not only anatomy but just the basic physics of matter you know <laughs> like like, mm-hmm. like so much of it is just off and off in a disconcerting way not often i don't like this this is not my personal aesthetic way not often a kurt is being objectified and it, like like, I don't think he looks like a Cable or a Youngblood character. Like, I think maybe they want him to, but I don't see, and, you know, please write in and let us know if you find this appealing. I don't think this is satisfying anyone's gaze. And, you know, yeah. apologi- apologies to the artist. I, I'm not, I, like, it feels rushed and it feels inconsistent and it feels weird. Well, yeah, because, I mean, excess can be appealing when it's dynamic, right? And we had Calervo talking about Ken Lashley a little bit on our last uh, episode. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I sometimes have issues with the way, like, a Ken Lashley will pace an issue. But in terms of rendering dynamic poses, it's like you Mm -hmm. get why somebody was excited about that kind of art, right? But this is, again, not Mm -hmm. not at that level, right? And, you know, decisions were made that that were sloppy, Um, we talked about, you know, going to the next page, Megan is still sitting on a rock and I, I'm not even mad about her being sexy mopey. I'm mad about her being sexy mopey in a way that doesn't look right. <laughs> yeah, like, like her, her her own rock hard ass is like teetering on the rock hard rock on, in a way that makes yeah. me uncomfortable for physical reasons like physics right. reasons yeah. yes <laughs> yeah and it's and it's the same thing with the writing i don't know why these decisions were made why did the team split up if only to get back together immediately like you, like you said I not know. only yeah. do kylan not only do kylan and Rachel know where Cerise is already. From the moment they split up till the next time you see Kylan and Rachel, they've done nothing. You don't see them again. Kurt left them to go to the Star Jammers and figure out where they, you know, where Cerise was. And then he gets there and Kylan and Rachel are there. So this problem could have been fixed by simply having Kurt teleport all of them, which I know he has trouble with, but, you know, 
like nothing else in this comic makes sense so why not right i don't know why the team was like usually when you split up a team in order to tell story it's because you want to go on a little side mission a little you know it's the jsa formula the team splits up they go off and they do they each do a thing and then they get back together they get all the pieces of the of the MacGuffin, and then they they unite and they do the thing like they've gone off and done nothing so why split up like well it also gets us it also gets us back to something we complained about in the last episode too because like why is it not kitty and kurt going on this reconnaissance mission it would have made so much more sense in terms of like character dynamics and shit we care about because they have a history of having buddy missions in space that's their thing that's when they first started becoming friends and like i'm supposed to care about like Mm -hmm. kurt and micromax having like a bonding moment like having this little side mission and i still don't care about micromax who cares and they know people like they kitty knows the star jammers she i mean i understand why rachel's there i guess but kitty knows the star jammers she is the one person that would be best for this because of all the members of excalibur you know kurt and and kitty are the ones who have hung out with these people before it's the only thing that makes sense i have i have a theory and it's a it's a very silly theory but is it just for to make the star wars references is it just so that you could have like you know oh I saw you know just to do the garbage shoot thing like in oh. Star Wars and then yeah. is it just so to have Rachel there because she needs to do the you know these are not the droids we're looking for bit not that, worth I, it. That, <laughs> that's my only thing mm. that I have. Yeah. <laughs> it was just set up just to do some lazy Star Wars references like twenty like ten years after it, everyone else had done that twenty. <laughs> <laughs> this book this book's almost yeah. 20 years after star wars <laughs> logical and, and and it's 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 frustrating because it's not interesting bad hunter you said it's the least worst of the three issues and that almost makes it the hardest to talk about right because it's like i i'm i'm covering stuff that we covered last time and that we will cover next time but also just sort of like there like i can say good things about it i don't mind the costume kurt gets here he'll never wear it again okay that's a thing and then i wonder about like um oh here you go we meet the female fang i actually like that image a lot if you're gonna go with this image Mm -hmm. style and you're gonna and you're going to like do this and you know it's like oh wow that's a kick-ass new character she looks like she might you know hurt somebody or or be important or i'm really excited to see where this goes next issue spoilers nowhere it goes nowhere and that's kind of (laughs) (laughs) we'll 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 see that next issue right so like that's like the most exciting thing that happens in this entire issue for me is the literal last page i don't know who this lilandra person is i mean i know who a lilandra is but she's not characterized anything like this so i don't know who this person Mm -hmm. is and i i don't recognize that outfit i don't know why she's being you know evil like that's literally the opposite of lilandra's thing i don't know why there's a ferengi here um yeah (laughs) thank you (laughs) yeah and i don't know why cerise actually gave her hologram message to kurt like she's like no don't come after me i'm that's right i'm evil bye um okay (laughs) i I don't know what she why she did that it's a two issue arc that is straight out stretched out to three issues that's what it is yeah that makes sense yeah and this is the one that got and this is the middle one so it's the one with the most stretching i mean yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean do we want to talk any bit more about because i know it's like 
almost like I'm like, well, there's no point in talking about it because we keep saying that like nobody cared. But like, do we want to talk anymore about like the ways that this issue does try to kind of like humanize or make us care about Cerise? Because there are some moments that like, you know, the fact that she helps the old woman and all of this stuff. But I don't even know. Like, I'll give you a chance, Hunter, to sound off on it if you have more thoughts about it, like about what they're going for with this character. Like, are we trying to establish sympathy for her? Like, is anything that happens here with her, you know, generating emotion in theory for us at all? I think some of it works uh, that, you know, okay, it's established that, okay, Cerise is not, she's not, it's not a huge, like, reversal retcon where she's been secretly, like, evil or something, like, all this time. In a way, it's very, it's still in line with the Cerise that you knew that's kind of, like, you know, nice and caring. In a vacuum, I like that bit. It fits in with the character. It also doesn't make sense and make much sense in context. It would almost make more sense if they just made her straight up evil. And I hate to say that. No, I can see that too. The thing that frustrates me the most maybe about it is like, yeah, it is the way that we have to see all of our previous interactions with her as deceitful. And, you know, even when I think about that page slash panel that you like so much, Hunter, of her introduction, where, you know, like that beatific smile that she has there and you have to think, oh, she was just putting that on as a disguise and an act after going through this traumatic event. And that puts such a dark spin on everything that's happened previously and that's really hard to take if you're gonna view this as a continuous story it's a little bit I don't want to say it's like devastating because this comic is from like 30 years ago I've had plenty of time to get over it but at the same time we're here podcasting about these things for an hour so we're very sort of invested in this world at that point and just being forced to think about that choice in that context this time around I did find definitely more painful than the first time I read these comics and like uh, yeah the other thing I was just going to mention uh briefly and then we'll talk about some other things was just I don't understand the nature of like the Shi'ar society as it's presented here and that's not necessarily a thing that's specific to this comic because the characterization of that society has been all over the place in a million different comics so I mean mm-hmm. it's not just the fault of the writer here but like you brought it's not up even consistent under Claremont I mean it's like no, Shi- of course. the Shi'ar yeah. society has never been consistent that's yeah. it's I know so it's like I'm not even going there with the criticism but just like you brought mm-hmm. up Okay, so this is like Cerise is like a member of the Hitler Youth, and yet she goes on this mission and had no idea that they were into ethnic cleansing. Right. And like, I get that you could be a little bit naive, but the extent to which she is naive doesn't feel convincing to me in this context. Like, I I don't know. I have I have an additional problem on top of that. She feels naive that she didn't get that, you know, and again, which is not to say that there weren't people who were forced into the, the I mean, there have been been many excellent films that, you know, and and yeah. novels that deal with the complexity of the the war in that respect. Um I will recommend a, a book that I've written. I, I wrote a review on a, a while back. I will re- recommend the book Letters from the Volga, which is brilliant story of war from both sides, which shows some of the trouble that like Nazi foot soldiers were dealing with where they, you know, they were just fighting because they were drafted. They didn't know what they were doing. Like, I, I, I get that you can do that. Right. Cerise not only is clueless as to what she's doing, but she is being tried for war crimes by the government that sent her to do the war crimes. It's not like she invaded the Shire Empire. She was part of the Shire Empire, if I understand this correctly. And so now the current regent of the Shire is like, everything in that war, your fault, not my dad's. 
<laughs> you know, like, why is she even on trial? I don't understand that. And, and, and if it's explained, I don't understand it. it. It didn't. I didn't get it. I think I filled in the pieces based on other generic stories. And I don't think we're really given that in this story. But like, <laughs> I just figured it, the story was one of those rogue commander things. And she like killed her crew and the rogue commander. And she's being held accountable for it because they need to hold somebody accountable. And again, we're not necessarily given that story here, but because that's a generic story that I've seen so many times, I was assuming that was what they were going for. But again, I'm doing that to the story. I don't think we're given that. Okay. You think she's being tried for killing the crew, not for yeah. right. killing the babies. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. That was my understanding. And Lilandra knows the crew was evil, but yeah. was like, but you were bad. Well, because they have to hold somebody accountable and they don't want to admit that all of that stuff was going on. And again, I'm just like using other generic stories that are similar to this to fill in those pieces. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, but that's the, that's the thing that could be an interesting story i that know but we'd have to do we'd have to write. do more yeah we'd have to do more with the nature of the shiar empire and kind of get into that though but um anyway all right let's talk about a couple of other things i wanted to talk a little bit about the characterization of kurt and i want to return to the megan thing a little bit because we talked about megan obviously in the last episode but i think we could say a few more things about it so um yeah let's talk about the characterization of kurt a little bit i know talking to you before this episode hunter that you had some thoughts about it so yeah what do you think about his motivations here do you find it believable that he believes this fervently in cerise's innocence it feels very it's one of those things where kurt has historically been tricked by the women woman he that he's attracted to it's a thing that happens a lot with him you would unfortunately I, yeah i feel i feel like i understand that He's he has uh, as you 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 mentioned this uh, he has this code of chivalry he's trying to be a white knight here I have issues with but that's another thing yeah and that he's like okay yeah, I have to hear it from her before I believe it like he has to defend his version of her I get that idea but why wouldn't you at least have him make him have some doubts like why wouldn't that be a slightly more interesting story than have him go wait was this woman that I thought I was in love with was just tricking me this entire time there's not even a, a note of that and that the fact that kurt doesn't even contemplate it when we look back at when during the cross time caper in the warlord uh parody sequence he's he's seduced and then but he promptly is like wait a minute there's something here that's not right like he at least he, he doesn't spend that entire time completely clueless it, it feels to me like it feels like he, he he's intelligent not to at least have some doubts here no matter how much how pure his his love is here like that's my problem it's it's basically not only does it not feel entirely in character it also is a much less interesting story yeah i'm of two minds about it because he is far too trusting and that's the reason why like, the women in his life are always <laughs> lying to him and he's always forgiving people that shouldn't be forgiven and so like you know that is a thing with this character and on that level i'm able to headcanon it and and buy it but the issue that I have with it is just it doesn't make the story interesting. There's no jeopardy here. Like, because Kurt trusts Cerise so much, we never actually think that Cerise is guilty. And so that's really not good for story tension. Like, there's <laughs> never any doubt about her because, you know, we've talked about this many times and 
uh, Andrew's talked about this on Claremont Run a number of times, you know, Kurt is often held up as sort of the moral paragon or the moral center of the X-Men. So if Kurt says the thing is right, then the thing is right, you know, and we're taught as yeah. readers to believe that, right? So if Kurt is saying that Cerise is innocent, we're like, oh, okay, well, she must be innocent and there's never any doubt introduced. So it creates a very stale story. Like there's no tension here other than how are we going to get Cerise back or are we going to get her back? But her guilt or innocence, which is supposed to be the big reveal of this, th this three-part story, like it's teased here. We get hints of what happened, but not the full story. I'm like, I, I don't know how I would react to this reading at the first time, but certainly reading it this time and thinking about how the story is set up. I'm just like, there's no tension though, you know? I, I think I would compare it to the Suicide, excuse me, the Suicide Squad film. Um, if anyone's had the joy of seeing that, there's a scene at the end where Diablo is fighting some stupid hula hooping thing. Um, and he says, <laughs> I've already lost Suicide one squad, family. Not the I'm not going to lose yeah. another. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea, sorry, yes. Uh, and we're like, he's had one moment with those characters in a bar. They're not a family. You can't just declare the emotional relationships between characters. You have to establish them. In uh, storyline time, this he issue met them yesterday. Is, he literally yeah, met them the day before. <laughs> for me, this issue is just Kurt declaring how much he loves Cerise and the plot declaring how much Kurt loves Cerise. But we haven't really seen that yet in my eyes, other than some minor dating episodes that, as we talked about, maybe didn't land as hard as we wanted them to. Just reminds me of something that Valentino said about issue 65, where you're like, well, I could see in this confined place, these people convincing each other that they love each other. And like, again, in a better story, I could see that here too. You know, Kurt yeah. is so convinced of her innocence because he wants his feelings for her to be genuine. So because he wants his love to be real, he is going to like go out of his way to do the white knight thing. And that would make sense in a better story, but that's absolutely not something we're given here. Anyway, go ahead. I, I will give that a little bit of leeway because Labdell didn't write it, which is to say- yeah we read kurt admitting to his love to cerise and we didn't buy into it we didn't like it davis wrote it but like that's what we were supposed to buy into we were supposed to you know the story mm -hmm. beat of that is these characters are in love now and we just didn't buy it but labdell has to work from the premise of this yeah. is his girlfriend so so like giving a little bit of credit to him he can't just go and retell the last year of alan davis's storytelling right and he shouldn't because davis is did fine on other things right but like he can't just redo that so working from there the problem is if that's the case there's more more struggle with it what hunter just said like you know more interesting if she's evil i'm wondering i'm trying to do the thought exercise now and in, in saying you know what would happen because the closest analog i can think of to this is one of my all-time favorite stories which a lot of people have a problem with for reasons that will become very evident to andrew in a moment is the judas contract the judas contract in teen titans there are and i understand the reasons why people have problems with like the deathstroke and terror relationship but that's not what i'm actually talking about what i'm talking about here is you have a character who we had we had the time to invest in wanting gar and tara to be together we had the time to invest in the relationship we wanted him to save her and she's just evil and the the most heart-wrenching part of that story is when she's about to die and gar tries to save her he's like take my hand take my hand and she's like no i would rather die than be saved by you and it's just it, it is heartbreaking and that works for me that said a lot of people hated that story because they could not handle the fact that this character that they loved and people people loved tara tara was basically kitty pride to many people at that point 
and they could not handle that this character that they love was just made irredeemably evil. Like that was the story. It's that she's evil and she was evil all along. And she you duped the readers. You, yeah. And, and people, people hated that. So maybe they're trying to avoid that here. But hmm. on the other hand, this is still bad writing and that was good writing. And, that's, <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I mean, I mean, that sounds like that sounds kind of mean to say, but I think the power of the Judas contract is that Wolfman and Perez made you care. Even if you hate that, you hate it because yeah. you are so emotionally invested. It hurts to this day to, for me to read. And I'm not emotionally invested in this. I just feel empty. And that's a problem. And that's a problem that's right. Dell's problem as well as Davis's problems because I don't feel anything for Cerise and I don't feel anything for how she is dispatched with in this story. Well, before we talk about Megan's, I want to end on a discussion of her. Like, I want mm. to come back to you, Hunter, and just ask, I mean, you said that you ship like Kurt and Cerise. So to your mind, I'm going to let you do the thing where you write a better story, which we always say we're trying not to do on the podcast, <laughs> but do all the time. <laughs> so like, I mean, what is your version of a better like version of Kurt and Cerise? Like, what would you want that pair to be if they were going to be a pair? Again, reading along again, I read these issues as they came out. As like a 10 year old. So this was the version that I was sort of coming with. What I liked about the Kurt and Cerise relationship was kind of sort of like the gender role reversal where she's the strong, you know, she's the strong warrior. He's kind of like the more sort of androgynous figure that that's more into talking and resolving things. She's, she's sort of, like the, you know, the, the strong, more masculine type. It's a sort of the, the modern idea that I keep seeing on Twitter all the time is like sort of the male wife slash uh, girl boss uh, dynamic. That's that was something that really appealed to me for a variety of reasons. So I was always rooting for him in, in that kind of way. So I like the idea of her being, even if it's Shiar, and that doesn't make any sense, of her being the strong, you know, of this, you know, the Star Wars woman who has this, you know, charming elfish trickster. Yeah, I that's 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 relationship that I invested in. Uh, in fact, he's sort of like teaching her about like you know, sort of like Earth things, and she's sort of like I don't, I know the, the, that whole dynamic. It appealed to me as a kid, and I really sort of wanted to see where that could go because it's a dynamic that at the time it you didn't I didn't see a lot in media. You mainly got a version of that where you know the man the man is the protector. And even in this story, you can see them, as I think Anna said in the beginning, you can see reversing where she's basically the damsel in distress and he's the white knight. And I think that a big part of my, just, like, even if they hadn't kind of ruined her character here with this backstory, I would still have been disappointed with that because I don't, this isn't, I don't want to see Kurt rescue Cerise. <laughs> like, that's not yeah, the version yeah. of the story I want to see. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what interests me about them sort of potentially is that it's a role reversal, but it's also a role reversal in which both of the characters have elements of gender queerness. You know, like you brought up the extreme femininity of Cerise. She's like a pink and purple character. You know, she's very glamorous in addition to being strong. And even, you know, her armor is very glamorous in and of itself. So like there's sort of an interesting combination of elements with that character. And, you know, even we can talk about the quote unquote born sexy yesterdayness of her combined with her being a very strong warrior character and done properly. That can be really interesting. You know, we've talked about that a number of times on the pod. And, you know, Kurt has a lot of that for me too. You know, he's got some feminine, you know, when I say feminine, and this is like in quotes, you know, stereotypically feminine, stereotypically masculine traits about him and sort of there's a lot that's combustible about that combination of gender queerness with those two characters that in again, in a completely different yeah. context in a different story, <laughs> I could see being really interesting. I would love to see that. But like, yeah, this happen. story, yeah, <laughs> this this turn of it definitely is not not where I would want it to go. That's for sure. Um, let's let's close up with talking just a little bit about Megan 
as a waterfall because we talked about it briefly <laughs> in the last issue uh, just to say that it sucks and I want us to I want... <laughs> and I wanted to just us put like a bit of a scholarly finer point on like why this is a problem in terms of gender tropes because we kind of treated it as a given that it was in the last issue so let's be a little bit teacherly here and kind of hit the nail on the head with that. And I'll, I'll ask you about it, Andrew. Like, why for you is this such a problematic turn for Megan? I think I'm um, putting it in comics terms. It's, it's analogous to fridging, right? It's a situation where the character is defined solely by her relationship to a male character. And it's weird because it's not that technical definition because Brian is the one who's not in the book anymore, right? But the idea that the only attributes that define Megan, the only agency she has within the story um, is relational to Brian himself, that's a problem. Uh, and it also, I think there's just like a general lack of understanding within the story uh, about what Megan has been symbolically in Excalibur prior to this. Like Kitty actually says at one point, you can't define yourself by your relationship with someone else. That's literally Megan's superpower. Right. Yeah. So it, it's a strange, like, like it's not a wrong thing to say. And it's something that I think Kitty would say under normal circumstances. Um, but I think there's a real lack of consideration for where Megan's agency as a character had been prior to this. Uh, and we're going from a very ironic portrayal to a sincere portrayal of um, a character with no power within the story whatsoever. See, I've had such a hard time. I, like, I want to be so careful when I talk about it, because one of the issues I have with it is characters telling her that she's grieving wrong and just telling her to snap yeah. out of it, which is a horrible thing to say to anyone. Everybody grieves differently. You know, <laughs> some people are inconsolable for however long and not it's not wrong. But at the same time, again, it is similar to what you're saying, Andrew, that, you know, it's the tropiness of it. But it's also that's not really how her powers work. She wasn't just imprinted on Brian. She has, you know, psychic empathic connections with other people as well. And mm -hmm. the idea that I mean, she had that deep bond with Rachel, you know, they switched bodies yeah. and consciousnesses and had all these bonds which are complex and queer and interesting and that's how she relates to everybody as a family and to have that just reduced to she only has that connection with brian like not only do i not think that's consistent with what we've had before but that's another instance in which you are simplifying this character you are making what this character can do less interesting by putting her within a much more and you know there's that word again heteronormative set of tropes yeah. and that's disappointing like that's sort of where i come at it in terms of like oh it is just that thing where that we keep talking about like, you know, Megan is this, she is a very melodramatic, hyper feminine character, but good stories use that to tell a story about those conventions and bad stories just fall into the conventions. In a better story, and this is, um, this is going back to even when Claremont was writing the book, when they're on the boat and she starts taking on the sailor's you know, desires over her and, and things like that. That is a weak moment for Megan the person, but an interesting and strong moment for Megan the character, right? Like yeah. yeah. Seeing, yeah. Uh, and I'm making that distinction. I'm okay with not, well, not with the Kitty and Rachel I love, but I'm okay with there being characters named Kitty and Rachel telling Megan to snap out of it. They're treating this like she and Brian just broke up. Her boyfriend, her fiance, just I died. Know, I like, know. Like, like, like she's get over to... it already. It was three right. weeks ago, Megan. <laughs> right, and she's allowed to be sad about that. And I, I think her friends are allowed to deal with her sadness wrong. I think that there are, yeah, yeah. you know, you can do, you can do a story where. 
oh, well, we just want to help. We're doing everything we can to try and help. And we're just doing it wrong. This isn't that story. In this story, Kitty is supposed to be right. And that's a problem, right? Mm. Um, where it's actually more interesting, and spoilers, it's going to, for next episode, I'm more interested in what Farron tries to do here. Because Farron's at least trying and failing, right? It's the same thing as like a couple, like or last issue, where Farron tries to order Kitty to be happy because Kitty is grieving. And I like that, like, there the story has intentionality. There the story has, this is ultimately a good guy. He's a child. You know, Farron's like 13, 12, 13. He's ultimately a good person who has no life experience trying to do the, his best to help his friends and doing it poorly. If Kitty is a 16-year-old girl here trying to help one of her best friends get over, you know, her fiancés, and she's just trying, you know, she's yelling at her, trying to just like, you know, I'm trying to reach out to you. I'm trying and I'm frustrated. The way she yelled at Kurt when Kurt was suicidal in the very beginning of the series, like that worked for me, right? Because oh, that's yeah. just, that's Kitty's way of dealing with things. Kitty's our point of view character, but Kitty does not have a lot of emotional intelligence sometimes. She can be brash and she can be, you know, she can make the wrong decisions because she's impulsive sometimes. Um, and she does it out of love, but that makes her interesting. She's not yelling at Megan because she's making the wrong decision out of love here. She's yelling at Megan because Scott Labdell thinks Kitty is right and Megan is wrong. The story thinks Kitty is right. And the story thinks that Megan is being melodramatic and overreacting. And, you know, if my wife died, I'd be, it, it'd take me more yeah. than three weeks to get over it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, that's I think pretty, it would take that's me a bit. I think I'd be upset for a little while. I mean, in storyline terms, Brian proposed to her, like, you know, if this has been three weeks, a month ago, you know, three weeks in one day, like, like right before that storyline, the last time that right before they got kidnapped by RCX is when Brian proposed. So it hasn't been that long. Everything in her world is falling apart she needs to be allowed to be upset about it and what makes this story work is if she gets a chance to maybe snap out of it long enough to tell everyone to f off right like leave me alone i'm i'm like if she needs that moment she needs to she needs justification and she just never gets it yeah i mean it's just again we, we mentioned this in the last episode as well but just the way it's trying to compare itself to Sword is John, but the context is so different because in Sword is John, Kitty yells at Kurt because she's over-identifying with him in some ways and because she's very upset about the loss mm -hmm. of her entire family as well. Like, mm -hmm. her emotions make sense there, but am I supposed... Like, if I was to read this the same way, I'd have to be like, well, Kitty's yelling at Megan because she's so devastated about the loss of Brian, and I'm like, ah. yeah. <laughs> Like well, I get that they we, like Brian, but not it's not yeah. the same. <laughs> well, we had that last we we had that last issue where she was like sort of she was sort mm -hmm. of stressing over you know losing Peter and Ilyana and, and Logan. Except they're all alive right now, which is, I, know, I mean I Ilyana just... is dying in her world right now. Yeah, so like yeah. I, and which again go there right if you tell me the story that kitty is saying the wrong thing to megan not because she's you know right but because she's saying the wrong thing because she is worried about her best friend is essentially 
you know, her best friend who's no longer a best friend because she was reduced to childhood, but, uh, you know, a person that she loves is dying of the legacy virus. And that's what she's upset about. And that's in here, but it's not the real issue. It's not enough. It's a miss. And if that's what it is, if if she, you know, she strikes out because she's really upset about losing someone on her own, of her own, that's a story that I'm interested in, but I don't get that. But yeah, Hunter, did you have thoughts about the Megan trapped in the waterfall thing (laughs) before we Um, leave that that conversation? uh, Everything you guys have said is right. I've tried to have any sort of like anything interesting to say about this the only thing i can think of like i kind of like the idea in a, in a vacuum of okay megan is kind of this elemental who's kind of like a, like and having her connect to like sort of have have this sort of like ovid metamorphosis moment where she's so in her grief that she becomes the waterfall that, that i kind of i like i kind of like that idea in theory it's sort of the connector has sort of like one of the basic you know you know, elemental forces of this world from a sort of like a classic standpoint. I kind of like, I kind of like that idea, but it's awful and it's boring. <laughs> and it's, <you> know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, that, that captures a lot of my feelings about it too. Like I sort of get a grain of what they're going for, but the execution's not working for me. All right, let's go around and do some final thoughts, stuff that we want to touch on that we didn't get a chance to touch on. Andrew, give us your final thought. What do you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance? Uh, I'll just do a quick defense of Bucalato, who is um, a very young artist at this point. And we know that Marvel mm-hmm. had to reach hard to find young artists when all of their artists essentially quit on the same day. <laughs> and I, I think Bucalato does get better. And one of the things that you notice about his work is that it's a more sort of um, cartoonish aesthetic where he's very um, distortive in his anatomy. And I think you can actually see pick pieces of that here. So I, I feel like he might get a, a sort of weaker reputation because of the kind of artist he is, where, as I said, I, I think he develops that into a sort of nuanced and consistent style later on. Um, and I think there are pieces of his composition here that I actually really like. It just feels unpolished to me. Yeah, that's that's very, very fair. Yeah, he's right. I mean, Bugalado goes on to do some really, really great like indie work. He works on X-Force for a little bit, I think, after this. Like he's he's got a lot of fun work that he's doing to the day this is this is early on in his career and he's not there yet and and i think he's trying too hard to be something he's not yeah yeah again very fair um and you know as we talked about many times we understand (laughs) this is like a getting books out every month industry and uh we try to be wise to the reality of that when we can but um but yeah did you have another final thought for us i i actually mentioned it briefly earlier which is um you know my my two big things were why is there a ferengi in this book and um (laughs) <laughs> and there and it there's no reason it's just there is one and also i like that there's suddenly a female fang like you know last we saw fang fang was a dude and dead um but <laughs> but but like we've got a new fang and you know this could be this is this could be really really interesting i'm really looking forward to to next issue to see where this goes and where this character comes from because she, she she looks awfully badass and Looks like um, like we might have some some great stuff coming mm-hmm. here. Bright yeah. future, bright that's, future that's for Lady looks. Fang. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tune in next week. Though, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was thinking, I was because I know obviously I recognize the the Fang costume, but I was like, is this feral? Like, and then it made me think of you know Liefeld and everything that being sort of one of his characters, and I was like, yeah, they're just kind of trying to do that, aren't they? Um, I don't even have a final thought. I like feel like I got all my thoughts out there. There's some good ads. I already mentioned the the. <laughs> 
<laughs> the ads for Dragon Strike. And there's another, which I will tweet out, excellent ad for Captain America, Nomad, um, the Faustian Affair, which is just a really beautiful ad. And, you know, probably what I thought was the nicest page of this book. <laughs> so was the page I have open right now and I'm just like that's just a really nice house ad it's really well done but um anyway <laughs> Hunter do you have any final thoughts about this issue how would you like to close out our discussion of this one um it's not maybe about the issue proper but it's just sort of a kind of putting a happy ending on on this um Cerise is getting written out of the book uh no no you know we've already discussed that um, she mostly doesn't appear again. And that's part of the reason why, also why I love the character is that she sort of like gets forgotten about. <laughs> and and that, so she's like a character that like I felt like only I knew about really. And she's almost like a symbol for how Alan Davis's run got cut short. And mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why I had such an effect for it. It, it. Just seeing her always reminds me of the experience of reading this for the first time. I, I think that she's been brought back a few times, uh, most recently by Kelly Thompson in uh, Mr. and Mrs. X. And I feel like the fact that there's a new group of writers that have their writing for Marvel that also, you know, came about with the Davis run uh, and also have an affection for this character, which I didn't realize. I thought it was just me. And she pops up in uh, Mr. and Mrs. X and she's still with the Shi'ar and they, they keep some of the things in this, but they keep her, they characterize her more as she is in the Davis run. And I really like it. It might be the best written version of Cerise that we have so far. And that was only a few years ago. So, and I'm hopeful that she'll pop up again and we might actually get a version of her that is worthy to my idealized version of her. That's Aww. all I have. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Once again, no sword strokes letters page this week. Notably, this <laughs> rejigging the series for the new era does not have any letters throughout. I have to think that might be intentional, um, but we'll catch up to sword strokes when we have it again. Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. So we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Hunter, thank you so much for helping us survive cross-examining this issue. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners about what you get up to and where they can find you. If you would like people to find you online, and I think you do, where can they find you? And what stuff of yours should they be checking out? Okay, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter pretty much. Whenever I'm awake, it's at Hunter <laughs> Uh, I strongly encourage people to follow me because I am that obsessed with Twitter. That's where I, I that's sort of like my medium. Uh, I'm not the best talker, as uh, uh, but that's sort of 280 characters is sort of my preferred method of communication. Uh, I will link to my work, whatever I have to write on there, including on the Guardian and Forbes.com. I mainly am paid to do sports writing. Uh, so most of my pop culture stuff I do on my Patreon, which is uh, uh, patreon.com slash hunterfelt. Like, pretty boring yes and i have some stuff that's for free some stuff that's for my like 30 followers like it's a very small fair but that's where i do most of my superhero writing and so yeah those places excellent um we will certainly link all of those things in our show notes and yeah just thanks so much again it was glad to give cerise a little bit of her due because i know we've done a lot of just complaining <laughs> up to now about her not getting her due you have not been wrong about that, about oh. any of the writing. I will admit, oh. <laughs> but this was an amazing experience. 
I really oh, enjoyed thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad we could get you on the pod. So next, we keep on trucking into Excalibur number 70, Crime and Punishment, which is another appropriate title for a comic that can be described as both of those things. We'll have another awesome guest along for the ride. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our fully updated website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another spacefaring conversation. Thank you, Hunter, for jumping through the portal with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. We keep going. It's difficult here enough. We'll get to the other side eventually.